Welcome to Podcast Against Antisemitism, the show that takes a deep dive into the world's oldest hatred. I'm Ellie, your host, and you can join us for new episodes every Thursday. Subscribe now at antisemitism.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a show. You can also watch the podcast on our YouTube channel and please consider leaving us a nice review so we can grow our listenership. It makes a big difference. My guest today is Dame Melinda Simmons, the British ambassador to Ukraine since 2019. Prior to her current post, Dame Simmons has worked in the UK civil service for over 20 years, having held posts at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, as well as the Department for International Development, where she worked on projects that included land restitution in the former Soviet Union. Dame Simmons has used her considerable online platform to speak out against anti-Semitism. Dame Simmons, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Kind of tired. It's quite busy here, but uh, good to be on. Thanks for having me. It's it's my pleasure. And look, obviously, I think we we are going to have to uh, start our conversation with some discussion of the war in Ukraine, particularly as it relates to anti-Semitism. Now, many of us uh, will be familiar with the assertions made by Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, in which he has compared uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to Nazis and has referred to the uh, so-called denazification of Ukraine. Now, not only was this discourse rife at the beginning of the war, but it has also appeared repeatedly, including from Russia's foreign minister, and also more recently again from the Russian president, with pushback from President Zelensky. Uh, Let me ask you, how are these claims received by Ukrainians, both Jewish and non-Jewish? So, uh, thank you. Uh, And it's a really complex question, because... um, I'm going to say that uh, this was denazification has not been an objective for Russia. They may have repeated it over and over again, but that's not their objective. It is a narrative, one of several um, fairly paranoid and baseless narratives that they have used about Ukraine. And they fish them out every so often, you know, I don't know, depending on the day of the week. They did abandon the use of denazification for some time all the way through the second half of last year and then came back to it again. They veer away from it. They come back to it. But uh, it's pretty clear they're not here to um, rid the country of Nazis. They are here to subjugate the whole of Ukraine for daring to pursue its independence and dare to be uh, a part, if you like, of Western um, Western Europe and Euro-Atlantic integration. That's really what the objective is. So in general, the answer is that it's not received with any kind of um, credibility here in, in Ukraine. And that's not just because the country is run by uh, a president who identifies as Jewish. It's um, generally because there is a deep um, scepticism from right across Ukraine about any narrative um, that Russia uses as a justification for uh, coming into the country and killing thousands of people for being Ukrainian. Among Jews, it's the same. And I can't speak for all Jews in Ukraine. I have not met all Jews in Ukraine. And it's a very uh, disparate um, range of communities. But I will say that among those that I've met in Kiev, there is the same scepticism, but there is also a thread uh, of fear about it. And that has a lot to do with the fact that Ukraine is is the epicenter of the Holocaust, right? This is a country that lost pretty much nearly all of its Jews in uh, in the Holocaust. I, I've been here four years. 
every town I go to. Every town has a killing field. Every forest has uh, a shooting site. Um, it's unbelievable, really, for someone from Western Europe to be walking around finding so much consistent evidence of uh, of killing of Jews. And that is something that runs deep, even though the country has not gone through the same conscious coming to terms with what has happened as many Western European countries have. I mean, Ukraine hasn't done that. Most of Eastern Europe, frankly, hasn't really done that yet. Um, so Jews who are here, who have that memory, and there are many Jews here who don't come from that, but those who do, older Jews who are here for that, there is always a twinge of fear about what that means, because what they do know is if the worst happened and Russia did, which they won't, by the way, in my uh, opinion, but if they did, if they were able to come to urban centres and uh, and occupy, it would very quickly translate itself into the sort of anti-Semitism that we have uh, we have seen um, inside Russia. Right. And um, you spoke there about uh, the history of, of Ukraine and the Holocaust. Now, your family um, came from uh, Kharkiv in, in Ukraine, where under Nazi occupation, thousands of Jews were murdered um, at Drabinsky Yar. The memorial at Drabinsky Yar was damaged by Russian shells following the invasion of, of Ukraine. When this happened, you drew attention to it on Twitter. When you first heard news of the shelling, um, how did this make you feel? And, and were your feelings matched by your contemporaries? So I, uh, I went to Drobitsky Yar in November of my first year here, and uh, I went to pay a symbolic visit. I knew that my part of my mother's family had uh, had come from Kharkiv, but I had no expectation of finding any information uh, out about them. There was just too little that existed, and frankly, they left about 120 years ago. I just wasn't expecting to find anything. But I did find my family name on that memorial, so it turned into what was going to be a, a, a sort of symbolic visit. It actually became deeply personal to me and was a most extraordinary moment, wow. and so was the moment when I told my mum about it. It was, you know, it was really quite oddly special because, of course, of course, what happened, therefore, to those people is the worst that you can imagine happening. But at the same time, it fills a gap in your understanding of your family history. So that was special. And therefore, when uh, the memorial itself was hit, um, I uh, remember thinking that it felt like my extended family had been murdered for a second time. And I was very angry. It's actually the moment last year when I was at my angriest, which should be irrational, because by then I'd been to Butcher and I'd been to Irpin and I'd seen these massacre sites from the first phase of the Russian invasion, and I was deeply uh, uh, emotional when I went to those places. But real anger I felt when uh, when Drobitsky was hit. I was actually in Kharkiv not long ago, and I saw the um, damaged memorial, twisted, you know, memorial with menorah with um, its kind of branches to have splayed, and it had rubble around mm. it, and it's uh, it's deeply upsetting. I, I had colleagues with me in Kharkiv, not Jewish, who were every bit as moved by it. Yeah. Good Lord. I mean, I, I've, I've got to ask you, what has your experience uh, of being in Ukraine during this war been like as a whole? Um, it's been uh, really quite tough on the one hand, because um, I didn't expect to have to run for shelter and um, power stations near you might be hit and you wouldn't have access to water, so access to heat, access to light. Um, you would, people that you knew would lose their lives in you know, missile attacks on apartments, people that you knew would be killed on the front line. So far, uh, eight people that I know well have lost their lives. That's eight more, frankly, than almost in my entire life, really, of people who have been killed, you know, fighting in a war. And so all of that 
it changes you a, a little bit. But the thing that saves it is the virtuous cycle that comes from working in a country full of people so utterly determined to defend their independence and to do everything possible towards it, no matter where you are. I could be in Lviv and I'd be having the same conversation in the west of Ukraine, or I've traveled as far east as I can go. I've been north and I've been south and I hear and see the same things. Everyone around you is doing something towards the, the war effort. That makes you very motivated to do even more of your own work. So that's what I mean by virtuous cycle. But it's also, it's a counterbalance for what you have to, uh, what you often have to endure by being here. Although to be fair, the biggest thing I've had to endure between COVID and then the war in Ukraine is three and a half years of separation from my family, which was never going to be part of the plan. Mm, that sounds really, really tough. And, you know, my condolences for the, for the losses that you've had. Um, last year, you were evacuated from Ukraine after already moving from Kiev to Lviv for your own safety. What was that like? What did it feel like when you were evacuated? What was going through your mind at the time? Well, I was I was evacuated when instructed to do so. I was I was told to leave Kiev, and I'd already told myself that if I was told to leave, I would go. I don't work for myself. I work for the government. The government, British government, tells me. I must go, then it's my job to go. So um, that's why I moved back to Lviv and the same thing when I was instructed to pull back to Poland, that's what I did. But um, it was unbelievably hard because there is a huge psychological um, importance attached to diplomatic missions staying inside the country. So I wanted to be really careful to explain to people we were pulling back only as far as we needed to and uh, would do whatever help we could from the other side of the border and as soon as we possibly could, we were coming back in. That was quite a brave thing to say, given that tanks, Russian tanks were rolling, you know, towards Kiev um, at the time when we were pulled back to Poland. But it is true that many other missions went back to their capital cities and we didn't. We stayed in Warsaw and we also had people deployed near to the border to help with humanitarian assistance. And it's also true that the very minute it looked as if there was scope to go back to Kiev, I went back to Kiev. So I wasn't out of the country for very long. Nonetheless, when I was taken out with my other colleagues, there were five of us by then who were taken out to Poland. There is an absolutely vivid and probably one of the most, the saddest memories I've had of the war so far of when we were approaching the Polish border and I began to pass Ukrainians who were abandoning their cars because the queue to get out was so long and they were wrapping their children in blankets and several coats and there were other children who had massive backpacks on their backs or they were carrying laundry bags or they were pushing wheelbarrows. Very vivid, evocative memories, actually, of pictures that you've seen of World War Two. And we passed that streams and streams and streams of people. And it was bitterly cold. It's very exposed um, territory. You know, it's not like it's not forested. It's very uh, bare um, in the approach that we took to the Polish border. And so these people had heads down against this bitter wind and were walking their way to the border. And uh, and I um, cried my eyes out all the way through to the border. I felt terrible about what I was seeing, just to see it. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds horrible. That sounds absolutely uh, traumatizing. And, you know, you, you've been in Ukraine now for, gosh, coming on four years. Um, you, you announced on Twitter that you will be leaving your ambassadorial role in August. How are you feeling about leaving and, and what have some of the highlights of your career been? Um, it's fine to be leaving because, um, you know, of course it's difficult to go, but I've, if you feel you've done a good job in any job, 
then uh, it's always difficult to leave it. And this has been an amazing job and therefore it's difficult to leave it. But uh, the person who's taking over from me is brilliant. So, you know, we'll continue uh, to do brilliant stuff. So that's okay. It's not like you get any sense that you're uh, abandoning people. If you know that you're part of a bigger effort, which is what the civil service is anyway, you're part of a bigger effort and part of a team and someone else is coming to take over. That's all great. Um, but at the same time, uh, I've also made so many friends in this country that, you know, these are friendships that I'll take away with me. And uh, and I already know I'll be back. There are many of us actually ambassadors who are leaving this summer just because there were, I don't know, 10 or 12 of us who started a four year tour in 2019, just around the same time as President Zelensky started his new job as president, we came in. And uh, we have all discussed that uh, we are coming back for a reunion after victory uh, and we mean it. So there isn't a sense of never being a part of this again. Yeah, that's really nice. It sounds like you've got a real community around you. Hey, if you want to stay up to date with the fight against anti-Semitism, why not subscribe to Campaign Against Anti-Semitism? Visit antisemitism.org slash act or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube. Being an ambassador who has uh, had a career that has taken you around the globe, a lot of people might be curious as to your impressions of how anti-Semitism manifests differently around the world. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences of being Jewish in Ukraine, as well as the other places that you've been to? Um, yeah, I, I guess so. So it's it would be weird to say this, but it doesn't really come up. <laughs> um, it's uh, I, I have tried different communities when I've been here in Kiev. And one of the things that I've uh, because it's important to me to be part of community. And uh, one of the things that you notice when you are part of communities here is a that there are loads and loads of them, but b that the majority of them have evolved post-war. And there are many people um, here who were, you know, not part of the original community. And so you get a real sense of, I'm sorry to say, but Hitler really having done his job um, in countries like Ukraine of having so completely eviscerated communities, you really get get that sense here. But you also get an amazing sense of renewal from some of those smaller communities. And I fixed a mezuzah on the wall of a building for a Mazorti community um, in the middle of last year. I mean, they came back during the invasion and uh, came back to a new property and I put the mezuzah up. That was a fantastic thing to do during at any time. It's a lovely thing to do. But during a war, putting a mezuzah up is such a symbol of hope and such a symbol of future, really, that um, that, you know, that's the paradox that is Ukraine right now. It's incredible that they could be fighting for their lives. And I still keep seeing new cafes being open, for example. So, wow. so you know, being Jewish isn't, it isn't, no, I'm really, there are at least 10 new cafes in my own area that weren't there before the war. They're very determined people. <laughs> um, so uh, I, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's not um, difficult in that sense to be Jewish. In terms of attitudes, it's, um, you, you find kind of broadly two sets of attitudes and one is a kind of that it's invisible that being Jewish is invisible you just don't think about it um, with the sort of set of preconceptions that are largely quite benign um, and uh, because being Jewish here is defined uh, as a nationality which is really interesting when I went to Western Ukraine I was given a briefing on Western Ukraine about the demographics and I remember seeing that it said it had X number of Poles and X percentage of Romanians, and X percentage of Germans, and X percentage of Hungarians, and X percentage of Jews. And I remember asking wow. the person who gave me this brief, how do you know if those Jews are, are Polish Jews, or Ukrainian Jews, or German Jews, or Hungarian Jews? No, they're just Jews. 
So I had to have a whole conversation with people who have PhDs in, you know, sociology and economics, etc., who could not describe this to me other than that um, traditionally uh, Jewish is described as nationality. So the issue, of course, with that is, and of course, you don't have to declare as a nationality, but it is described as a nationality. So the problem with that is, of course, that if you uh, isolate being Jewish as nationality, then that leads to uh, preconceptions and issues that can absolutely sound and look anti-Semitic, even if people here may not recognize it as such. And so one of the bugbears I've had in the four years I've been here is that you can still buy very easily matryoshkas, you know, those dolls that you open up and there's another doll inside it, yes. you know, the wooden things. Um, you can you can easily buy matryoshkas that show a Hasid clutching a money bag with a pointed nose and hooked ears, etc. Are you serious? You can get those from a tourist shop that is... Yes. No, 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 I'm serious. That uh, you can get those... You can get those during the war, actually, among the souvenir shops that have reopened. You can find them in Warsaw, too, by the way. It's a It's a trend. It's a thing that has not gone from this region. So, so I think one of the, my most profound challenge being a, a person who identifies as being Jewish here has been that I've had to set aside my understanding of what it means to be comfortably Jewish in the UK and try to understand why things that would look so unbelievably um, insensitive might exist as a sort of mainstream part of, uh, of society. I mean, in 2019, I remember having a colleague who told me that they had a little matryoshka with a Jew with money bags on it. Uh, and uh, I remember asking why they had it and was told that they called it their lucky Jew and they took it along with them for job interviews. So when you've got that, uh, you've got to tread a road in which you have to set aside your own, your own historic understanding and start talking about why that might be seen very differently by, say, me. And uh, I have had further conversations with colleagues and friends here, Ukrainians, who would tell me subsequently that um, they've never understood it that way. And uh, were only now, if you like, beginning to understand that that might be a, a, a sensitive thing. I mean, there is a cinema in Chernivtsi, which is an absolutely beautiful um, city, smallish city in the southwest of, uh, of Ukraine that has a, it's a cinema of about four floors. It's absolutely massive, but it used to be called the synagogue because that was the main synagogue of Chernivtsi. And then uh, during the Holocaust, of course, uh, everybody was taken away. And so it was converted into a cinema and the local population call it the cinemagogue. <sighs> and wouldn't, it hasn't occurred to any of them that that might be an insensitive thing to right. call it. I, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit baffled because obviously uh, in, in Britain, I think, you know, that just would not fly. Um, is, is there a sense from the Jewish community in Ukraine that this offends them, that this is not okay? And if so, what has the response to that been? The thing about being a British Jew hearing it is that it all sounds really offensive and, and objectively it is offensive. But I'm in a country, and this is not to excuse it, okay, but we have actually got a job to do to understand it. I'm in a country that has been occupied for decades and Russia that occupied Ukraine has taken every conceivable step during that occupation to minimize or even disappear that Holocaust history. So there's no sense of it being taught in schools for you're talking about, you know, 70 or 80 years. It's not been recognized. Babin Yar is uh, only about a 20 minute train ride from here, for example. And when I first came here in 2019, all there was there 
was one menorah that had been put up only about 10 years previously. There was nothing else to tell you that it was the, still the site of the biggest massacre by bullets in history. No one would know it. There were beer bottles in the base of the ravine and I saw little kids riding their tricycles over the steps to the menorah and, you know, no memory. One of the most, um, one of the biggest differences since Zelensky administration began is that there has been a focus on consciousness and understanding of seeing what there is through different eyes. Babinyar is no longer Babinyar. It's now the Babinyar Memorial Park. It has brand and it has name, it has information, it has installations. It looks completely different from how it did in 2019. You cannot walk into that area now and not know what happened. In 2019, you could have walked all the way through and thought, wow, this is a really lovely park and sat down in the ravine and eaten your picnic and not known any, any better. That's the thing is that the consciousness journey has barely begun um, in countries like Ukraine. Ukraine isn't alone that way. And that nor have they yet had the conversation about collaboration either. Even that is only just beginning. So when I'm often criticized for trying to give this perspective and people say, yeah, but what about Ukrainians who were part of it? And it is factually the case that Ukrainians were recruited and were part of it. The answer has to be, this has to be part of the painful and difficult conversation that a country has to have with itself. And the fact that the UK might be in one position about anti-Semitism and many countries in Eastern Europe are way not in that position. I'm afraid we are the ones who have to take several steps back and look at the journey of consciousness and education that needs to happen. It's not uh, a situation where you turn around and you castigate a country because they haven't taken those steps and they've just got to get with the programme. Well, it sounds like uh, Ukraine finally is taking the steps, as you just said, President Zelensky, uh, yeah. his efforts to introduce Holocaust education. I, it's, it's, I'm not sure ironic is the word, but it's very telling what Russia's intentions are, given that the narrative was the denazification, even though President Zelensky has taken steps to improve Holocaust education. Well, I guess it's, uh, I mean, Russians have been very clever at, at adapting narratives and twisting them around, you know, one or two facts. So, um, you know, in theory, the sort of the, the, the most analytical that you could say about it is that it stems from um, Ukrainian nationalism as it manifested itself during the time of the National Socialists when there was evidence of some collaboration with National Socialists in return for uh, for independence, kind of so goes the story. In fact, the Nazis ended up throwing most of those Ukrainian nationalists in Sachsenhausen or they executed them at Babinyar, interestingly. So it didn't end well, that attempt at collaboration. But it is true that anti-Semitism was a part of that ideology. And I still have that conversation with uh, friends and colleagues in Ukraine where I say that and they deny it. And we have to have that conversation in a very repeated way, even just to accept that. And of course, what they say to me is, but uh, they were put in Sassenhausen. And I have to say, I know. And as weird as it sounds, those that survived it came out anti-Semitic. Uh, and I, I can't explain to you how that's possible to, to go to a concentration camp, come out and go, yeah, that's a good thing to do with people who aren't purely Ukrainian. I, I still can't get my head around that historical context. But in terms of the question that you're asking me, it, the so what's happened here is that your kind of evidence that there was an anti-Semitism within the ideology it gets taken out and made a central thing. It's not any, in any way a central, even these days marginal, part of the Ukrainian narrative about what and who Ukraine is. And that's what makes this uh, not just a false comparison, but it's a pretty egregious disinformation that Russia uses as a basis for a mass murder that they're currently 
uh, engaged on. And if you do, you know, if the term Nazism evokes anything in your head, then it really is painful. It's painful enough engaging in helping Ukraine to defend itself against what this onslaught. It's even worse, really, to have that history thrown back at you in in uh, in a pretty denigrated state. Mm. You know, we, we, we read so much about this in, in the media, but it's actually really, really interesting to hear it from you, a Jewish person who's actually on the ground in, in Ukraine. So thank you very much. Um, I want to ask you, you've spoken about how community is important to you. What has your uh, Jewish life looked like in other countries, your experience of being a Jew look like uh, around the world? This is my first time posting to Eastern Europe, and so it's been completely different. But for example, I was posted to um, South Africa, and uh, it was completely normal. But then, you know, it wasn't war. I had my family with me. Everything uh, in terms of practicing as a Jew was available. There was a lovely community we were a part of, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, similarly, I spent some time in East Jerusalem. And, you know, there's no need to have a conversation about how you can be Jewish in Israel. Um, there was uh, an interesting, more interesting time when uh, uh, working on the Middle East where y you had an underlying sense of needing to justify to people that you were able as a civil servant to work impartially on issues that people may have preconceptions that you wouldn't be impartial about, but that was not impossible to do. So I'm not going to pretend that there was some terrible debate I had to have with people. I didn't have to do that. There were undertones and there were questions and I would simply answer those questions and then I would bring in some hamantash and or some bagels and make it about my <laughs> cultural background so they would understand that for every Jew, the start and the beginning and end of their identity doesn't necessarily revolve around Israel. There are other things about being Jewish and I would sort of introduce those. So the truth is yeah. that for other places where I've been posted or lived, it's, uh, it's, it's been pretty regular and it's been more about, you know, adapting to sort of accents or different ways of running services or different ways of, uh, of applying culture. But for sure, the most challenging in terms of this kind of blindness uh, about being Jewish, uh, Ukraine has been both the most challenging, but also the most deeply interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's, it sounds that. And it's very clear speaking to you that your Jewish identity is, is very, very important to you. Can I ask, uh, can you, I'm very curious to learn a bit more about your, your Jewish upbringing. What was that like? It was just conservative upbringing. Um, uh, the family were members and still are of a United Synagogue. I'm not, I haven't been a United Synagogue member for, for years. I've been longer a member of Reform Community than I than I was part of the United Synagogue. But that's how we were brought up and brought up in Essex and all very, you know, very kind of regular and kind of normal. I think the, only, the standout, which actually is the thing that um, made me move, as it were, it wasn't like a kind of walkout. It was, um, it was about being female. And um, and I clocked it very young. I first clocked the difference between women and men's participation um, when I was seven years old. And I remember it very, very clearly that moment. And from that time, really, I had questions in my head about why I had a secular life that was all about encouraging, encouraging you to pursue any career you wanted and the very best of yourself and do anything and learn anything and any job. But if you stepped inside the synagogue, you had to sit at the back. Like, I just never, ever... And this is all you sat upstairs and you had to wear a hat and you, you didn't participate. You couldn't pick up the scroll and uh, never, ever bought this narrative of women have separate jobs that, um, you know, that part of the Jewish community would explain it away with. That's what drew me to uh, a different Jewish community and actually remains one of the core reasons why I love so much to be part uh, of an egalitarian Jewish community.
Mm. Well, you're a member of uh, Finchley Reform and you've been attending services remotely. What has that been like for you? Well, starting during COVID, so it was fine, right? I mean, we all uh, experimented with it during COVID and discovered that there's more than one way that you can do this. And so I was just, I've been weirdly grateful to lockdown. I understand how controversial that sounds, but goodness me, I wouldn't want to go back through it. I really wouldn't for the loneliness and the separation because I was here in Kiev during that time and I was, you know, unexpectedly and like many other people forcibly separated from my family because I couldn't travel to them for six months, the longest I've ever been away from my partner, certainly the longest I've ever been away from my kids. It was horrible, but it really prepared me for this time where, you know, they, they are not able to come in and stay with me. Uh, it takes me three days to, to get to see them. So it doesn't happen very often, but the, the connectivity that you get from being able to be online, that has been incredibly important. And having had the dry run during COVID, it's been really wonderful to be able to dial in to a service on um, Friday night, which is my favorite service. And quite often at the end of a really difficult week, particularly if there have been airstrikes in Kiev or someone I know has been injured or I've been working on a particularly difficult brief, to tune in and listen. And FRS is a very musical community. And just listen to the liturgy and listen to the music is has been really helpful for me in uh, balancing out a sense of calm and control and ease. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad. That I'm happy to hear that. Um, now, this, this year, you were honoured as a woman of distinction by Jewish care. What was that like for you? Well, I wasn't at it because I couldn't get there. So I asked my parents um, to go. And so uh, my mother uh, and my, my mother and father went along and so did my sister, actually. And uh, my mother made this absolutely beautiful speech. It was recorded and someone sent it to me afterwards. Um, my mother, I don't think, has made a speech for like 40 years or something. I can't remember the last time my mum had to stand up and say something. So I was so unbelievably proud of her and she was completely brilliant. Um, and she, you know, she just explained what it was I was doing and why I couldn't be there and then accepted this award. But I mean, of course, to be recognised was a, a, an incredibly lovely thing. I have my head down a bucket here. I work seven days a week. I often work through the night. I'm so focused on some of the most basic things that need to be done here that it's quite hard for me to lift my head and look around and think of it as something that's not normal because everyone around me here in ukraine is doing exactly the same so inside ukraine doesn't feel special but what the award did was remind me of what perhaps should be obvious which is that to friends and contacts and other people in the uk this absolutely isn't normal so that was yeah. a lovely reminder yeah. of that that's great. Um, I, I want to ask you now, uh, to anyone who is thinking of a career in the British Foreign Service, what would you say? Oh, come on down. Water's warm. It's, uh, it's such a fantastic career. What I can't promise, I can't promise that a glass ceiling has been smashed. And I can't promise that it isn't um, difficult from the point of view of many diversities, not just being Jewish. There are challenges, and particularly if you do what I do and you, um, what all my colleagues do, and you go and live in another country. Any diversity in countries that perhaps are more patriarchal or you know, or more conservative, um, you have a, you can have a mountain to climb. But one of the most you know extraordinary things about what draws people to to diplomacy and diplomatic work is a curiosity about the world, and you know this experience I've had of being Jewish in Ukraine has challenged my understandings about being Jewish in the UK. 
in a way that I think is really helpful. I have friends and family who think it's completely freaking mad. But if you uh, if you're someone who has curiosity about how other people perceive your, you know, your assumptions about life, well, then this is the career for you. Uh, and since I'm someone who quite likes those sorts of challenges, I think it's great. Yeah, nice. That's awesome. Um, as as we begin to uh, wind down now, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of our guests, which is if someone who is not Jewish approaches you and says that they want to help in the fight against anti-Semitism, where should they start? Um, well, I, I always have one recommendation for everyone. It doesn't matter who they are, which is to call it out. That's the one thing that they can do is to call it out. And when they ask what that means, what I say is, if you think there's a march going on, join the march. If you see uh, something on social media and you're an active part of that social media, you say on your social media that it's not okay and that you're not comfortable with it. If you see something really bad, then you report it. If you saw someone being beaten up in the street, you would probably want to report that to the police. If you see the same sort of bullying going online, you, you probably should be doing the same. And I'm interested that people see a distinction there because I don't. I, I, mm. Most of our life is, is lived online in terms of that interaction now. I don't understand how people think it's uh, their world on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok revolves around just those things. But if uh, people that they know or like are experiencing that abuse, that's not part of their online world. It needs to be part of their online world because all that's fantastic about social interaction online, I'm afraid, is, in, is uh, integrated with all that's the worst of what's online. So uh, that is what I ask people to do, to call it out. Yeah. Simple, easy, good advice. I like it. Uh, now, please tell the listeners, what have you got going on? What have you got coming up? And where can people find you? I don't know. I'm disappearing. <laughs> I have only leave in two years. And as I said, uh, I've barely seen my family and friends. And I think it's enough for them to be worrying about me now that it's long enough. So um, yeah. when I come back at the end of August, I'm, I uh, have until the end of the year to um, reconnect and adjust to a normal life and and that isn't just about actually being with family and friends it's also about becoming comfortable with calm i notice when i do come out of um, kiev i have a team in warsaw and i visit them that if i hear a motorbike backfiring fireworks are the worst or even bad weather thunderstorm i get uh, really uneasy and actually most ukrainians uh, have the same reaction like my hands shake if a you know a car bangs someone even bangs a door so I clearly have some trauma that I need to process and that sort of thing takes a bit of time. That's what I'll be doing for the next few months. After that, let's see, hopefully another diplomatic posting. Well, look, I really uh, I wish you much luck on your journey. Dame Melinda Simmons, thank you so much for coming on Podcast Against Antisemitism. Thank you. Thanks so much for giving me the time. It's been great to meet you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Podcast Against Antisemitism. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a nice rating or email any feedback to podcast at antisemitism.org. Until next Thursday, stay safe.